Hey everybody, how you doing? Now, let me adjust my chair here a little bit. So uh, my name is Andrew Krauss, and I co-founded EventRight with Stephen Key over 21 years ago, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. And ever since uh, the pandemic, I've been doing these Monday um, Q and A's, and you guys have been saying you like them, and I love doing them. Had a pretty long day today, but it, you know, you think like answering hour of questions wouldn't be fun and relaxing, but I, I enjoy it. And you guys have great questions, and so that's what we're going to do. Um, so I want you to type your questions into the questions box. Um, Steve and myself and our team, we've been coaching and mentoring inventors for the last 21 years. We have had students in over 65 countries. Um, and we have students licensing products all the time, and I'm very, very proud of that. We do a lot of free education. Uh, we do uh, YouTube. Um, my business partner writes for Forbes Inc. and Entrepreneurs, so he writes about licensing there as well. And uh, then, of course, we have students that we guide and coach and mentor um, through the whole process over a six-month period, which really seems to do the trick. Um, what licensing is, just for those of you that are new, um, when you license a product, it's their money. So you don't need to raise money. You know, when you see shows like Shark Tank, or do they don't get the money, don't they get the money? Well, when you license product to a big company, um, it's their product now, and they're going to invest their money. And usually these big companies, they have lines of credits. They have unlimited money for a product that sells well, so they can afford that. So you don't need to raise money. So when you license to a company or rent or you lease your idea to a company is the way I explain what licensing is. Um, it's going to be their money. you know. And if any company is asking you to put your money in, that's a giant red flag. It's not really a licensing deal, 99 times out of 100. Um, then they have the workforce. So they have sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising. They've got this machine for their 20, 50, 100, 200 products, whatever number of products they have. Now your product is plugged in that machine because you rented or leased your idea to them. You licensed it. Um, and then the biggest thing, the part of the machine is their sales machine. So if they're in 30,000 stores, then boom, you're in 30,000 stores. Not necessarily in all the stores. I mean, not every company has every product they have in every store that they're in, of course. But their distribution is your distribution, which is really, really hard to get. For you to get distribution on your own, retailers don't like one SKU, one product companies. So when you license to a big company and they're visiting the buyer at the retailer or distributor, um, they're able to get the product in there where the retail looks and goes, uh, this guy or gal, they're not funded. They don't know what they're doing. They might not deliver on time, not have good quality control. There's a lot of reasons why retailers and distributors don't like one product companies. But when you license to a big company, your product is not with a one product company. It's with a 20, 50, 200 product company. And they know that they have the backing of the workforce and the money and the experience and all that. So they're more likely to take on a product if it's being shown to them by a big company rather than by you if you're trying to sell it yourself. Okay, so hopefully I didn't ramble too much on that. Let's uh, jump in here. And, you know, everybody has their Skype handles. Um, so, you know, that might be your name, but it might not. So I'd appreciate it if you could type your first name. If not, I'll just read the funky Skype handle. That works fine as well. All right, so let's get going. Some people have a lot of more than one question, so I'm going to try to 
make it fair here and then maybe jump back to some of them. Um, see, Michael says, I have two products that achieve the same goal, but in different ways. Okay, it's two products that achieve the same goal, but in different ways. Okay, it's got two inventions that solve the same problem, I guess. Uh, a company is interested in one, and a second company is interested in the other. They both want to move to a contract. Can I do that? Wow, that's a good problem to have. Um, Michael says, a typical contract states that I cannot develop similar items and offer to other companies. Would I have to disclose this to each company? So, Michael, I, I know your name. I want to, let me look it up. I just wanted to see. Man, my database is really slow. For some reason, your name is familiar, and I wanted to see if you're a past student. Oh, there we go. Let's see. Yeah, it looks like you're, okay. Looks like you're a student in uh, 2000. 18. Okay, that makes sense. That's great that we empowered you to do all this and you're at that point. Um, that's great. So Michael was an InventRight student. Looks like Paul was his coach. Paul rocks. He's fantastic. Um, he happens to also be our negotiation coach. Um, so uh, so the, the difficult part of this, this is interesting. A typical contract states that I cannot develop a similar item and offer it to other companies. Would I have to disclose to each company? Interesting. So um, second company is interested in the other. Okay. So he's got uh, two products. They offer the same benefit, but they're different. And um, and he has interest. So my answer is the second one is just interest, Michael. You don't know that that's going to move forward. So it's that whole silly, you know, a bird in the hand thing. So if you've got a contract on the table with one, I would fully go for that. Um, well, you didn't say their contract said this. You wrote a typical contract states I cannot develop items similar and offer it to other companies. It would depend on how similar it is. So, Michael, you're a, you're a, a past InventRight student. Um, please just call the main number and talk to customer service and have them uh, put – uh, you on my calendar, okay? Because I see you're a past event rights student. You know, we're always here for past event rights students. This is a very unusual scenario. So my main response, so just to help everybody learn a little from this, you've got a company and you've got a deal on the table and you got another one that's showing interest. And Michael, you've been doing this for a little while now. Um, you know, interest and you actually You've licensed a product before. I see you're one of our students that's licensed a product before. So interest is not a closed deal. So I take what you have right now, but and then and then go ahead, book an appointment with me. I'll help you out. Okay, it's a very specific scenario. So call the main number. Say Andrew told me on a YouTube show on a past student, and I he said to, to book an appointment with me. Okay, um, so go with the one you have. But we need to figure out. I want to look at both the products and see how much different it is. Because if it's, even if it offers a similar benefit, but it's very different, I think it might be okay for you to work on the other product. But it's not the same product, of course. I want to see that. And there's no way I can answer it without seeing the product. But but good on you, man. It looks like you're going to close another deal there. That's, that'll be your second one, I think. So that's great. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, past students are getting on these Q&As now. Um, okay. Uh, John C3, um, you didn't say your name, so that's your handle. Hi, Andrew. 
co company encourages inventors to submit ideas. I just read these as they're written. So if you guys can try to get English good on here, that would be great. That's like, like I spoke good English there. Uh, company encourages inventors to submit ideas but won't sign an NDA. Your thoughts? Yeah. What made you think they would? Um, so this is just a learning experience. What made you think that a company wants to sign your NDA? So let's, let's say this company gets 100 ideas a month from inventors. And every inventor wants them to sign their NDA. Well, you need an attorney in there to spend tons of time to make sure it doesn't say something like they own your company or you're obligated to license from me. Or They need to read it when it's your NDA. Um, and they might be working on something similar. So you're saying, look, whatever I send you, this is what you're saying. This is how unrealistic this is. And so I'm not saying in some scenario. And by the way, anything that I share tonight is not considered legal advice. Contact an attorney before you move forward in anything. Um, but what you're saying is you need to sign this NDA. Whatever I send you, you need to keep confidential, but you don't know what I'm going to send you yet. Think about how that puts them between a rock and a hard place. Why not follow your provisional patent? You've got your place mark in time for when you're protected from that date and then show it to the company and you've got your provisional patent, right? And it might be because some attorney told you to do that, but you got to ask that attorney, how many products have you licensed? And 100% of them are going to say none. Oh, okay. And some of them I've had uh, talked to inventors where the, their attorney said, you need to insist that every single company signs an NDA. And then they contact me go, Andrew, nobody will sign my NDA. Only like one in 10 companies. I'm like, because that's not how the world works. It might be what your attorney advised you. It might be good advice to protect you. But are you protecting yourself if nobody's ever going to see your product because they think you're a wacky inventor that insists you sign their, their, your NDA? So, again, this is not legal advice, guys. So if an attorney tells you that, you listen to your attorney. But what I'm telling you is file a provisional patent application. That's what our students do. And I'm not telling you to do this because I can't offer legal advice. But we tell our students to file a provisional patent. That's your main form of protection. And then show it to the company. Now, NDAs do have a place. Like, let's say, and a lot of times, like, you send your marketing piece, and it's just obvious how the product is made. And what it's done. But sometimes there's things that are, that are hidden. Like, it's like, I don't know what the inner workings of this product is, right? And, or they want a prototype. So now they know what the product is. They've seen the marketing piece. And this might seem backwards to you, but... They've seen the marketing piece. They're like, oh, we're kind of interested. Maybe even you start talking to them some. Maybe some emails go back and forth. And they're like, oh, we want a prototype. Okay, and you might get them to sign an NDA then. And maybe you're want to sharing some innards of it that aren't obvious for some products. For other products, it's just obvious. And you get them to sign an NDA. And now they're signing the NDA with the one or two products they were interested in that month, not um, all 100 um inventors that submitted to them that month. It's just not practical for them, okay? But always, always, we always advise our students, and you guys aren't students, just to be clear. Sometimes people get confused. Um, people that sign up with our coaching program, that's who I'm referring to as students. You're, you're fans. I get that. Um, but some people just think we offer so much help. They're like, I'm a student. I'm like, I don't see that you're a student. Like, I looked up Michael, and he was a past student. Um, but that's flattering that you, you say that. But from a practical standpoint, if you ask all these companies to sign your NDA and insist on it, in most industries, you, you just, you're just not going to end up showing to anybody. 
you know, because they're going to go no. Um, now, sometimes they have their NDA, and you should just go ahead and sign it as long as you're okay with it. Now, sometimes there's something in there that's not okay. Now, think of it as their NDA, which doesn't usually protect you that much. Usually it protects them. Sometimes it's somewhat bilateral, but a lot of times it's not. Mostly it's just to protect them most of the time. But it, it says that, you know, whatever intellectual property you own is, you know, whatever we own is we own, which is very reasonable, right? And a lot of times what people freak out about with the non-disclosure agreement, they're going to call it an NDA, but it's actually a non-confidential agreement. It says we don't have, we can't agree to hold anything you send us confidential because essentially we don't know what you're sending us yet. What if we're doing something in the back room and now we're obligated to hold these things confidential? I got all these emails like popping up on my computer and I turn that off so I can focus on talking to you guys. There we go. Um, so the, 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 the answer that attorneys give you is very different than the answer that InventRight gives because we want our students to license products. Um, and, and, you know, what I can say is in the 21 years we've been doing this, because our students are conducting themselves professionally, they're not acting like wacky inventors, they're not asking for a quarter million up front or stupid stuff like that, or they're not saying, I want you to sell you my patent, which is a stupid thing to say, by the way. Um, you don't sell a patent. That's not the way it works. You're, you're, you're licensing the benefits of this product. You're licensing the product. So you don't use the word, I want to sell you my patent. That's a rookie move. So um, when you're not doing those types of things that make you look unprofessional, that's the reason why literally in 21 years, I don't know of a single student of ours that I'm aware of that sent a product to a company and then later got knocked off by the company they submitted to. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, why am I insisting that every company sign this NDA? You thought it was a good idea. Your attorney told you for whatever reasons. Um, but a provisional patent application holds your place in time for what you've got from that time. And it lets you get into companies and feel protected somewhat, you know, um, by it. You know, I mean, but keep this in mind. A provisional patent is not a patent. Even a, when you file a patent, that's not a patent. Until it issues you can't go around suing people and you don't really want to do that anyway. So it's all just perceived protection. We talk about this. So, you know, in my opinion, if you're, you're, if you just thought that and you listen to me and you're like, okay, Andrew, that makes sense. Okay. Maybe you're ready. But if you're like, Oh no, I couldn't possibly do that. I think you're too worried about getting ripped off. Um, do some inventors get ripped off once in a while? Yes. It happened to one of our students. Not that I know of. Is it going to happen to one of our students one day? Yes. Um, as I talked to inventors that, that it's happened to. Um, I, I had this uh, woman that dropped me an email this morning, and she, she said, I'm so disappointed this person ripped off my idea. And so somebody just came out with the same idea as hers. Now, this particular idea wasn't protectable in any way, shape, or form. But in this person, I think they weren't connected to her whatsoever. And she said they stole my idea. I'm like, they stole your idea? They just came out with the product. It was an individual, too. It wasn't like a big company or something. They came out with this product, which I could tell had no intellectual property whatsoever. And I'm thinking, like, well, this person that came out with the product that you think stole your idea, if that's successful, anybody can do this, and there's no way they can protect it for this particular idea. But she felt like her idea was stolen, you know? So I do talk to inventors that feel like their idea was stolen, but you, I think they talked about this last time. Like I talked to an inventor and they said their idea was stolen by the company they sent to. They said, well, when do you show it to them? 
And they said, oh, two weeks ago. I'm like, so you think that they manufacture this? It's just like, this is crazy inventor territory, right? You think the company tooled up, made this product, and then put it on their website in two weeks. If that's what you think, <laughs> you're nuts. Um, so, so some of these stories you hear about inventors getting ripped off, it, it's the inventor, it's not true. Now, some of them are true. But um, if you can't get over that, you shouldn't do licensing. You just shouldn't because you're just going to run through life with fear. Now, if after listening to us talk about this stuff and figure out how you can protect yourself the most at the lowest cost without spending $10,000 on a patent by filing a provisional, um, and you learn all these things, and you're like, wow, okay, great. I feel empowered, Andrew. Now you're in the right mindset. If you're like, nope, still completely paranoid about getting ripped off at every turn, well, you know, what you should worry about more is about doing a good marketing piece so you get interest from a company. Because most people that do their marketing, most inventors that do their marketing is absolutely abysmal. It's, they're, they're, uh, they're, it's not spot on. It's not like you look at it and go, oh, yeah, I get this. You know, it's like, what? And you're trying to figure it out. So if you want to worry about something, worry about doing a good marketing piece. Don't worry about intellectual property. I mean, just do it. Just file a provisional. Um, so man, I rambled so much on that. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to take it up a, a positive notch here. Sorry about that. But you guys got my take on it. So if that is educational, I, it's all good. Even if I sounded like I was whining or something. Um, uh, so so Joom C three. Don't worry about it. this. Isn't about you, man. You're just asking a normal question that everybody asks about NDAs. I'm not coming down on you at all. Hopefully you enjoyed the answer. You didn't ask anything wrong by it. It's something people ask all the time. Didn't ask anything wrong by asking that. Um, uh, okay, uh, Jason said, hope you're okay. I've received quite a few no's, but I've invested thousands into the final product. If I still get the no's by the same, this, this time, the time the year's up, should I refile a PPA and just crowdfund the invention? Um, no, I'm not big on crowdfunding at all anymore. I think it is right for some people. Um, I, I like the grassroots nature of crowdfunding. I always did. But there's a litany of problems with it now. Um, I always liked that it was cool that you had this new product idea or new idea for service or what have you, and you can go on Indiegogo and Kickstarter and raise money. Um, and it's, that's very grassroots at its core. But it's, it's that whole – and at the beginning, there weren't that many people on there, and it's kind of cool that people can support an independent inventor or somebody that has this new product. Just really cool. Um, but this is why it's not cool anymore. Everybody and their grandmother's on there, okay? Um, people are trolling to rip you off on there. They're trolling to rip off your idea. When you start to see some campaign being somewhat successful, um, there will be people that will knock you off and literally be selling it on Amazon before you even finish your campaign. And we've seen quite a bit of this. So that's so I'm like, geez, why would you go public with your product and do that? And the answer is, well, Andrew, because I want to raise the money. But here's the problem these days. It's not what it used to be. You could go on there and you could you need you need a good social media network. 
And if you're not, if you don't have thousands or tens of thousands or even a hundred thousand people in your social media network, um, back in the day, you could kind of like cobble something together, try a lot of different things and still maybe do okay. But even back then it was a problem. Now people are spending $25,000, $35,000 in order to raise a hundred. That's not grassroots anymore. And there's companies that will do it for you and do social media campaigns for your crowdfunding campaign, but you need to spend 25 to 35K in order to raise 100. Well, that's not, oh, I don't have any money. I'm going to raise the money on there and then make and sell the product anymore, right? There's also uh, companies on there that are utilizing it just to promote their product. They don't need money. And now they're utilizing it to promote their product. So the whole thing is just degraded beyond belief. But even back when I thought it was kind of an interesting idea, people fail to launch a proper social media campaign. So they don't raise any decent amount of money. It's very, you know, never enough money to start. And then when they do, they fail to be able to manufacture it. Like our IT guy, James, he's kind of our everything guy. He's a great guy. He's been with Steven and myself for 21 years. He would say, oh, I got this and I got that on crowdfunding. I don't think he does them anymore. And I would check in with them and say, oh, did you get that yet? No. And I'm like, how long has it been? A year? And then I check back again later. It's like a year and a half, two years. They still didn't get you the product? What the hell? So a lot of people would fail to manufacture it because it's not easy. It's very difficult. People think like, oh, I'll just go on Kickstarter. I'll raise the money and then everything will fall into place. It's like, no, you're running a freaking company. It's not about just raising the money. So most people don't raise enough money, but when they raise enough money, they fail to be able to manufacture it. And then if they are successful at manufacturing it, they're, uh, they have issues maybe with uh, the manufacturing of a defective product, et cetera, et cetera. But then they deliver it. So let's say they do well and then they deliver it. Now you have, now you're out of money because you spent all your money that you raised. Um, Because, yeah, some people have a like the sophisticated Silicon Valley people. They do some sort of new smart watch or something like that. And they raise three million dollars. But that's not most people on there. Okay, so now you deliver the product to, let's say, the five thousand people that bought. You're out of money. Now you're a one skew, one product company that's delivered product to five thousand people and you have no distribution. What do you do now? Do you think that? Retailers are going to be like, oh, my God, he sold 5,000 units. And they're going to be so excited about um, having you in Bed Bath & Beyond or Target or Walmart. No, quite the opposite. They're like, okay, so he's another guy did a Kickstarter campaign, delivered 5,000 units, has no money, no track record, has one product, not interested. So so now I don't. I think there are some people that could utilize a Kickstarter and go go and make use of it. But the fact that you get knocked off by people before you even get on there, especially with simple products, the fact that you can't just go on there with no social media network, or even if you have one, you're lost in the sea of people. And the people spending twenty five, thirty five k, thousand dollars to raise a hundred thousand are the ones that are going to rise to the top. It's just a mess. I don't recommend it. Now, when you license. You approach these companies, they show interest, it's their money, it's their workforce, and it's their distribution, everything in one place. So just like Shark Tank, I don't think crowdfunding is attractive. I think licensing is the sexiest thing in the world. Now, maybe it doesn't make for good TV. Do they get money? Don't they get money like on Shark Tank, right? Um, But it makes for good reality, and reality TV is not reality. So that, yes, that is a barb on Shark Tank and a barb on Kickstarter and Indiegogo.
Um, have I seen people that utilize those things and made it work? Yes, I have, but I don't think it's right for most folks. Man, I ramble on that. Um, let's see. So, uh, so Jason is saying, oh, so if I can't license it, so I'm glad you're going with licensing, Jason, should I just do crowdfunding? And it's like, why is that your mindset? And I'm not picking on you, Jason, because I think a lot of people think like that. Are you a one-trick pony? Like, this is the only invention you're ever going to come up with? This is what I would do, Jason. If you don't license it, I would not put it in the garbage can. I would put it in the closet, and I'd start working on licensing another product because that's your business model, right? And then I would wait like six months or so, maybe five, six months. I would take it out of the closet, and I would resend it to everyone that said no, except for people who gave you a specific reason why not. Now, if five companies said during this year, this won't work because of this, and you look into it and you're like, I can't fix that. Okay, you're done with the project. But what happens a lot of the time is you get non-specific no's, not at this time, not a right match. It irritates the hell out of our students. Sometimes, you know what irritates people really? This is a really cool product, but not right match for us. This is what a lot of people don't realize, and I've been talking about a lot about this lately. Maybe they liked it, but they didn't tell you, and they don't want to tell you because they got three bosses. They got a ton of projects they're working on. They're overwhelmed. People in corporate America are doing two or three people's jobs these days. They're inundated with email. The reason why they didn't respond showing interest is because they don't have the bandwidth. They're just a person like you and me now. They're the marketing manager or one of the marketing managers in the company. They don't have the bandwidth. They're too friggin' busy. So this is why when you don't get interested in a product and they didn't give you specific reasons why not, let's say 30 companies, it didn't give you any. Maybe one gave you a reason, but you're like, no, that's not making sense. Put it in the closet, send it out to everybody. You got all their names and their email addresses, send it to everybody again. I get students that license all the time that way. Okay. So Jason, my response is not to go, oh, they didn't license it. Well, screw them. I'm going to go on Kickstarter and I'm going to... I'm going to risk, I'm going to spend 25K or I'm going to go on there and I'm going to try to do a social media campaign when I literally only have, you know, a few friends on LinkedIn and, and, um, and Facebook and stuff like that, friends and family. You're not going to launch a proper social media campaign on there. And if you just put your product up and expect people to find it there, it's just going to be another failed Kickstarter campaign. So you need to spend a bunch of money. And it's like, do you really want to spend, like, let's say you didn't spend 25K, which is what I hear people are spending. Let's say you spent 5 or 10K. That's a lot of money to raise more money. You know, it's like, that's not low risk anymore. Licensing is low risk. So instead go, okay, I'm going to move on licensing. I'm going to work on licensing another product. Keep myself busy so I'm not upset about not licensing this first one. Then I'm going to pull that one out and send to everybody, maybe some new ones. Then we're going to look at my marketing material, see if it was, it was, could have had been better. And if you go back and you're getting feedback, like clearly people aren't understanding your product. This doesn't happen to our students so much because our students work with their coach and kick ass marketing materials. But when you're on your own, the marketing materials I see from our fans when I do see them are usually pretty poor. It's very rare to the best. Okay. Like poor to Okay but never I get it in six seconds. Not never. I do see those sometimes. So do this. Um, before you keep reaching out more, Jason, do the computer test. Put your cell sheet on a computer, show it to a friend or family member or just some stranger 
You don't know. Stand behind the computer and see if they get it. Don't answer any questions, okay? And see if they look confused and see if they get it, okay? And if they start asking questions, go, oh, that was a question. And just just uh, don't say anything. Let them keep rambling and asking questions. And you'll realize sometimes, oh, crap, this wasn't as clear as I thought, right? And then do not hesitate to send it back out to all the same companies. It's not like you get one try. You can literally say, my marketing materials weren't clear. Can you give this a 10-second look and let me know if you're interested? I reworked the marketing materials. It's okay to do that. There are people like you and me. you know. So, And also realize that when you're licensing, you're not licensing just to a company. You know, It's not the company that showed interest. It's a person that showed interest. So they're influenceable, just like you and me. And most people are pretty kind, I've found. Now, they're overwhelmed, but when you say, can you give me a 10-second look? It's not a right match. Just simply reply, not a right match. Make it easy for them to say no. Very few inventors do that. You don't have to do that the first time around, but if they're not responding and you already sent something to them, second time around, make it easier for them to say no so you can go, okay, check that one off. Because they're not doing you any favors by not responding to you. Some people don't want to say no to people. You know, some of them are just lazy and they just let it go down in their inbox and you need to resend it. But anyway, so um, Jason, not if you haven't got the idea, not a fan of crowdfunding anymore. I used to be, but it is degraded to the point at which I don't think it makes sense for almost everybody. Um, if you're going to raise money, raise money another way. I don't think you need that type of exposure, even if you have solid intellectual property. Are you going to run around suing people? I don't think you need that exposure. You know, one of the biggest forms of protection is not patents. It's licensing it to a huge company, and they're first to market, and they push it out there. And, yeah, they'll send a cease and desist letter, somebody knocking it off. And those little guys that are knocking off are afraid of that big company, but they're not afraid of you, right? And, and the cease and desist costs them next to nothing, but they're not going to run around. Even the big companies aren't going to run around suing people. But a cease and desist letter, you know, your vital intellectual property, that's very cheap for them to do. And they'll, they're usually most companies are happy to do that. And so when you license that big company, you are that big company and you're perceived as that big company, you know. Um, okay. Marlon, uh, hi, Andrew. If a company produces toolkits and my upgrade is to add a gum grip for their tools. Can it be licensed even if that new part is made of gum and they do not produce gum grips or similar? Well, first, Marlon, you're violating what I always say is never disclose your product publicly, especially not on here, but I guess you're not really, I think you're just using that as an example because that's not you know, much of an invention um, unless you're going about it with a certain material. So I, my guess is just that's your example. You know, um, can it be licensed even if that new part is made of gum? They do not produce. Yeah, you'd be surprised what you can license. We have students all the time that license stuff that's not really patentable, or if it was, it's pretty weak. So as long as that is a very clear benefit. Um, but if if other companies are making tools with a gummy, grippy, you know, handle or something. And then you're just telling this company, well, you should do that. Well, you got nothing, then, right? Now, maybe your gum grip is a little different. Maybe uh, it has, uh, you know, little, uh, you know, how handles sometimes have little um, mountains for your fingers. Like, let's say it's a gum grip and it's a finger. Or 
or it's, there's something that's different about it. Maybe it's super extra large or it has some other feature that is different than what the other gum grip, gummy grips on tools are. Then absolutely. Um, now, tools is a tough category. Those guys, they, they beat you up about patents, whereas like kitchen gadgets, they don't really care that much most of the time. Novelty don't care. A lot of categories, they don't care as much. But the tool guys, they, they really need some intellectual property at least something to hang their hat on most of the time. Um, it's just one of those few industries where they really want patentability. So um, have a point of difference, you know? Uh, and uh, But sometimes you can take things from here and put it there. I can't answer your question without knowing the specifics of your invention, but hopefully the general answer helped everybody. Thank you, Marlon. Um, Uh, Justin said, hi, Andrew, should I file a trademark? The trademark was tiny, tiny as a TM on a product name uh, I use on the sell sheet. So here's a product name. He's saying, should I put a trademark on there? So everything I share with you on these public Q&As should not be considered legal advice before moving forward on anything. Always consult with the attorney. What I can tell you is all our students did exactly what you did. So Justin put the TM. The little TM is called a common law trademark, and it's just you putting people on notice that you intend on using the mark. Now, patents, with a patent, you get a patent on something, and you can beat somebody over the head and say, you can't do that. I got a patent on it, but it's issued, right? You cannot do that with a trademark. Um, you got to use it in commerce. But for a period of time, you can, you can file an intent to use application and register it, but then you got to pay all this money. You know, so you, you pay like 1500 bucks to register the trademark. You don't even they want the name. A lot of times they don't want the name. So you can see right up here. Now, ours is actually registered. This banner is not up to date. But we're 21 years in business. And I think it was only about two years ago that we actually registered our trademark. If anybody did, because we're selling product and commerce, so our product is coaching. If anybody did anything to do with uh, inventing or licensing or coaching and then use the word invent right, we could just squash them because we could show the history of 21 years of doing that. You know, so um, Justin, what I'm saying is our students, it's never been one of them in the book. It could, and you could just spend money like left and right to go, oh, this remote thing that could possibly happen. I'll spend another five grand there, another 10 grand on a patent there and blah, blah, blah. So like file a provisional. 75 bucks gives you a year to fish off the pier. Or if you want, you can file a full utility patent for 10 grand. Same thing with the trademark. You can, uh, you can spend, you know, a ton of money on a trademark that they may not even want the name, or you can put them on notice. You intend on using it, but the TM doesn't cost you a freaking dime. Just like in your question, you put the little TM, put that just like we did up here. That is a more common sense, practical, cost-effective solution. Our students do it all the time. Have I ever seen it bit one of them in the butt? Never. Could it? Could. But we've had students in 65 countries for 21 years. Could it? Yes, it could. On a funny note, it only happened once. We had a student that was working on licensing a product. And this has only happened once. And they just did the TM, the common law trademark. Company didn't want the product, but they're like, we love your name. And they actually licensed the name. And they, of course, registered it at that point. So our students, you know, if you get a lot of traction on it, they really, really like it, then you can go ahead and register it. You can register it before, but I don't see it as a good use of money. Um, and a lot of times they want to change the name. 
Uh, and if a company wants to change the name or they want to make a pink and you want to make a purple, you start arguing about that sort of thing, man, that's a red flag, crazy inventor territory. And you can make your case, but um, so but sometimes people just fall in love with the name and that's just not what they're going to name it. So to spend 1500 bucks on that, is that worth it? Probably not. Um, uh, Mike said, you and Stephen are awesome. Thank you for the great information and the support. Thank you. Thank you, Mike S. I appreciate that. I've got a lot of Michaels and Mike S's here. Let's see. Um, yeah, this is a yet another different Michael. So we had Michael Greer, Mike S, and um, now Michael Caprio. I'm talking a lot. I need to take a sip of water here. Um, hi, Andrew. I completed a product. Oh, I got 102 people on. That's cool. Um, hi, Andrew. I completed a product and started reaching out to companies. I have a company that solely wants to purchase units and start selling. Is this okay to make them some prior to licensing? So, you know, sometimes people, they, they, they reach out to people they think are potential licensees, companies that can make and sell it. And they end up with it like a distributor. And they're like, we just distribute products. And it's very flattering that they're like, oh, we, we want to purchase 100 or we want to purchase 20 or whatever. But does that mean you should just run out and then manufacture this thing? And they may be the same company that's like, oh, you know, it's not selling. We want to send it back to you. And those are the terms. It's like, so it's very flattering, but it's, it's not a licensing deal. So in inventors that do that, I find they, they're very distracted. It's like, okay, I know it's flattering. I know you haven't gotten traction yet. Big company hasn't wanted to license it yet. And this company says they, they want to purchase 100. But are you going to do, spend all this money to tool up and manufacture it to give this one company 100 units? They're like a distributor usually. You know, this, so they distribute product. You know, is that a smart choice? Not really. If licensing is your business model, it's a major distraction. Um, now, if you change your mind, say, oh, I want to sell it myself, but then realize what you're getting into. You're getting into 60-hour work weeks, got a full-time job or a business. You're not going to be venturing the product and doing that on the side. And then maybe nobody else shows interest. You know, maybe that one distributor does. Instead, take that interest the distributor is showing, if they're a distributor or a retailer, and then when you start to reach out, tell these manufacturers with brands that have distribution and retails, well, I've got interest from this distributor or that retailer already. Use that as some bait instead of saying, oh, now I'm going to make 100 units, you know. Um, but the question specifically was, is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. I think it's a distraction. I don't think it's you're staying focused if you do that. Um, the product is patent pending and I have a final product and I have final product slash packaging. Just not sure if I should start to sell one, some product in case it hinders the licensee. I want so I can get sales analysis. Okay. You don't need that. Companies are going to look at your product and they're going to, based on knowing all the products that are selling there, judge it. If you say, well, I sold a hundred units there, they're like hundred units. That's it. Can almost make you look bad. You know, because it's like, well, so how, what's your track record in sales? And they're like, like, no, I'm just looking to license this. And so now they're using their imagination on what this product can do. Whereas opposed to you selling them 100 units 
And, you know, yeah, you might get some testimonials. That's not all bad if you got a testimonial from a customer or something saying this thing is great. Um, but you sometimes you can just get testimonials like that from professionals otherwise, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, now it sounds like that was the path maybe you were going down because you said you got final product and packaging. So then you changed your mind and now you want to license it. So you have to make a decision if that makes sense for you, Michael. But um, selling 100 units or 1,000 units isn't going to impress any company. That's like nothing for them. Maybe they're selling 20,000 a year or 200,000 a year, which is the whole point of licensing is you can tap into this giant company. Um, but your situation is kind of unique because you have uh, patented product and final product and packaging. So you could sell some units there. And I think it's just how you talk to any potential licensees about it. In your case, it might make sense because you could get some feedback and some testimonials, but you have to work with whoever's selling it. And maybe they're not getting that for you. And you're not able to deal directly with the customers. So I don't know if you'd be able to work that, but that's kind of a unique situation. Um, you definitely don't have to manufacture your product for those of you that are new in order to get interest from, oh, I got to show them I sold some. Okay, because it's just what I said before. It's not going to be impressive to them and what any volume you can sell. I mean, if you're like, hey, I've got distribution in 10,000 stores and I've been running this business for two years and we sold 50,000 units last year. Okay, you can go from there and do a licensing deal. And some people have been venturing the product. And don't get me wrong. If you've been venturing the product, and now you want to switch to licensing. Go ahead and do it. And when they ask you, like, so what have you done? And you're like, oh, I sold 1,000 units. And, but I was just testing it say you know almost make an excuse for the abysmal sales um, but if your sales are through the roof you know use that and you're like i just i've had students come on board they've been venturing it and they're just drowning in their own success and like a big company can do better than me with this and they're they're making a ton of money and they want to license it okay talk about your success then but then others are like very mediocre success and some are just really struggling they're like andrew trying to sell it myself but i'm make, making like minimum wage here and I'm like, mm, we've got some testimonies and stuff, but don't bring it up in conversations because that's that's going to make it look a little bad, not good. Uh, uh, Sheila, hi, Andrew. I have a storage product, and I'm calling companies to try to use LinkedIn. Okay. Calling to try to use LinkedIn. I'm confused by that. You're, you mean you're reaching out on LinkedIn? I'm also adding more companies to my hit list. Any suggestions? A storage product. I don't know what that storage product is, but if you mean like home storage organization, I love that category. That's a great, a great category. So find people that are currently selling the retailers where you want to be that are selling products somewhat in that same space. It's not rocket science, but you know, that's the type of thing that our coaches go over with the students. and they The students never come up with a full list of companies on their own. Coach is always like, okay, we can improve the list. Let's look here. Let's look there. And you have to take a look at the very specific product in order to do that, Sheila. But um, look where you want to end up and look at companies making somewhat similar products to look for lists. Um, Uh, we mean fitness. That's their handle. Hi, Andrew. How do you value potential market of an invention when there is no existing comparable sales data? Apple Watch is just buzzing like crazy. 
Um, and it's and it's a new pioneering mousetrap, not just a better mousetrap. Thanks. So um, you don't. You just let the marketing managers that you're going to approach with these companies use their imagination. They're either interested or not. So what you want to do is do the best marketing piece you can so that they understand the product. And if you need to, like you said, you're saying it's completely new. It's not a new mousetrap. It's a, it's just, it's not just a better mousetrap. It's a pioneering mousetrap. Okay. But there's always a comparable. So when there's comparables, that's a good thing. But so just do a good marketing piece and let them use their imagination. You don't need to come up with facts and figures there. If, if it's the only time it would make sense to do that, if it's a category they're not in, but why are you reaching out to companies that aren't in the category of your product? You know what I mean? So companies that you reach out to are going to have be selling products in that space. If they're selling kitchen gadgets, it's a kitchen gadget. If they're selling gardening products, it's a gardening product. If they're selling like Sheila home storage organization products, they're selling home storage organization products. So they know their market and let them use their imagination as far as how this could sell. I know you're saying it's completely different. Rarely do I find one inventor say that it truly is. I'm like, okay, yeah, it's really cool, but this and this and this are alternatives. And they might be solving in a completely different way, but those are alternatives. So um, do a preemptive strike. When you send a sell sheet, think about what their possible objections might be if it's that new. And then maybe some of them are in your marketing piece, but they're also in your email where you're addressing, you're doing a preemptive strike on what you think their objections might be. Don't write a letter, but maybe a couple sentences on what you think their objections may be so that you're like, oh, this is how I see they could discount it. Address it in the marketing or the email. You don't need facts and figures for that. The only time that would make sense if you're approaching companies that aren't in that industry, don't tell people in industry their business. You're going to look stupid because they're going to always have more information than you. And just let them use their imagination. Go, ooh, this is cool, right? And um, so uh, you don't need it. I know I'm not saying don't do marketing research, but if you say, oh, the market is this, and if we only get 1% of the market, never, ever do that. That is the biggest rookie move ever, never. So don't tell them their business. They know their business. Um, intrigue them with the benefits of the product. It's a marketing piece that their customer is going to see. Let them be intrigued by that. Go from there. Um, see, Rod said, if one writes their own PPA to claim patent pending um, and the potential licensee wants to see it, can you suggest anything to say to avoid disclosing to them one's non-provisional drafted PPA? Um, yeah, what, what, it's not that you don't want to send them your PPA at some point, Rod, but it, it just, if you just send them, if a company says, send me your PPA, send me your prototype, you never, ever, ever want to do that. And it's not because they're going to steal your prototype or they're going to look at your PPA and try to get around you. It's not for those reasons. It doesn't move the deal forward. That's why you don't want to do it. You want to get on the phone and talk to them. Get them kind of wrapped up in your project. Get them start to talk about your project. You want to create some rapport. Now you're a person. You're not this faceless email with a product. You're a person now. So, And you want to talk about the product and its benefits. And the PPA 
is never the first thing to talk about. And you don't even bring it up on that first call. If they do, you can talk about it. But And you don't want to disclose all the specifics of what you protected or not. And guess what? If you file the PPA and it's an industry that's really difficult, let's say a tool, you might want to go, okay, I got some traction here. Now I want to have an attorney, patent attorney, review this and fix it up. And you just file it again. Another PPA, another 75 bucks before you show it to them. But I... I there's a lot of different ways to delay talking about the PPA, but don't think it's the first thing you're going to bring up. It's a bit of a red flag if it's the first thing they talk about is the intellectual property. Not necessarily. I'm not saying that means you don't want to do a deal with them. I'm just saying their mind isn't in the right place. This is what you need to know is you don't just respond to what they ask of you. The reason why our students do deals is because our coaches and our negotiation coach, Paul, is guiding you. So they ask something, you half answer it like a politician, and you guide them on this direction. And it works beautifully. So don't think, they're not going to be like, oh, okay, uh, Andrew, like let's say I got interest. Andrew, well, here's our formal process for licensing. We're going to do this, this, and this. They never do that. Even if they've licensed 20 products and they do have a process, they're not going to share it with you half the time. You could ask them at times, like, what's the next step? And a lot of times, like maybe they've licensed 10 products, but the marketing manager that likes your product, he's been there a year and a half and he just likes your product, but he's never done a licensing deal before. You need to guide him. He's your Superman within the company. And then it's going to end up at other people in the company that know more about licensing if they've done a lot of deals. Or maybe the company's never done a licensing deal. So you need to guide them. You're not being rude. You're not being pushy. You're answering a lot of their questions, but sometimes you're half answering it. You're redirecting it or saying, look, we can talk about that later. You know, I'd be happy to talk about the intellectual property later, but I want to talk to you about the product first, you know. Um, so that's why, it, like, if, if, if when our students got interest, we sent our students to a licensing attorney. They're the ones that write licensing contracts. Oh, you got interest. So call licensing attorney. They would kill 80 to 90 percent. Usually I say 80. I just upped it to 90. This isn't a statistic, guys. This is just my feeling. They would kill 80 to 90% of the deals that Paul helps them do because they come at it from a legal perspective. A lot of the earlier talks have nothing to do with legal. Initial interest to contract is way more important than contract to closed. So if you muck that up, you won't get to the contract. And that's what our negotiation coach, Paul, is great at doing. And that's what we guide people to do, how to have those conversations. And we empower people. Like Michael, was, um, he had licensed a product. And, and he was at the earlier, the beginning of this call, I looked it up and he was a student back in 2018 and 2000, I think expired, his membership expired 2019. And so we want people like Michael and other people that are students to go, you know, I know how to guide things through these initial talks now. I know how to move things forward. And I know how to get things to about 95% done. And when they're 95%, then yes. You'll have a licensing attorney dot the I's and cross the T's before you sign anything. They're good at looking at the minutia of it, but they will nitpick the deal to death to get more billable hours, two, three, four dollars an hour, whatever they're charging, and they'll kill the deal on top of it. And, you know, it's not uncommon for one of our students to reach out to 30 companies, get interest from five. But every time you're calling an attorney, you know, at two, three, four dollars an hour, that's not the invent right approach. You're not keeping your costs down, but it's not just about keeping the costs down. It's about them not killing the deal, you know? And so that's, 
that's uh, hopefully that's helpful, guys. Um, let's see. Okay. Let me see if I can find somebody that I haven't answered a question from. Uh, Jay said, hi to everyone watching, and thank you for taking the time doing the Q&As. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I love this. I love doing Q&As. You can tell I'm passionate about this. Um, okay, uh, Spunky Monkey says, hey, Andrew, signed a contract, and it's going smooth. That's great. Uh, they also told me we should begin talking terms and bringing you in as an inventory partner is inventory partner commission sales is an inventory partner commission sales i have no idea what an inventory partner is i've never heard that term i can google it now but i don't waste your guys' time i don't i don't know what that i don't know what that is and you're using a handle so i don't know spunky monkey if you're a student or not um, so please drop me an email at andrew inventright spunky monkey with your real name and um, I'm very curious as to what they're talking about with an inventory partner commission sales. I don't know if they're talking about like if you want to sell some on your own or okay with that too. I don't. I don't know. Um, hey Patrick from uh, Hi Stephen and Andrew from Toronto. Patrick Rice, welcome Patrick. Uh, Clyde said Hi Andrew. Um, let's see. Okay, let's answer a question from somebody else. Uh, Fred writes, hi, Andrew, what about companies that specifically say they do not take unsolicited sub submissions and go on to say your submission is in its contest and any related intellectual property rights will automatically become the property of in... Okay, I'm not going to say the name of the company, of the name of the company. Um, you know, I've talked to some attorneys and they're like, uh... I don't think you, that's even legal, um, but I see that once in a while. Don't freaking submit to them. There's nothing more to think about. It's funny. Our students and, and our fans are asking that all the time. I'm like, well, they're telling you they don't want your ideas. You know, I don't see it that often, but I'm seeing a little bit more these days. And that's what they're telling you. Who would be stupid enough to, to submit under those terms? Um, you know, maybe there's some good people in that company, you know, marketing manager or somebody. Um, and the company just came up with this messed up policy. But in the end, if somebody came with that policy and put it on their website, even if you've got a nice marketing manager that's like, oh, I really like this product. Is that a company you want to deal with? You just got to move on. You know, they're trying to let you know. I was I was thinking about, um, you know, I, I had this thought over the weekend. I was at, I haven't gone to the store in eons, but I went to Bed Bath & Beyond with my wife because my wife needed a new pillow. I said, don't buy that online. You got to test it out. She was all embarrassed because there was like a bed there, like a little mock bed. And I made her lie on the bed with the different pillows to test them out. So we bought a, a pillow for her at Bed Bath & Beyond. She loves it. It's a great pillow. And no, it's not the MyPillow guy. It was a pillow from some company. Um, and where am I going with that story? I just lost my train of thought. Oh, I, I was, and I saw this company, um, I'm not going to mention them by names, they make trash cans, and they had a similar submission page. I saw them at Bed Bath & Beyond. And it upsets me when I see that. I'm like, what are you guys doing? You know, they have the right to do that, but they don't have the right to take your idea. I mean, if you file other intellectual property, 
you know, I don't know if that would be binding. And uh, Steve and I have talked to some attorneys. They're like, I don't think that would be binding. But um, I wanted to create a directory just for our students. I didn't want to make it public because I didn't want these companies to sue us or something. But, you know, all these companies just for our students that have those types of agreements and to say, don't buy their products this Christmas. You know, I, I'm not going to do it. I just had the thought. Um, I thought it was kind of cool. Um, and then also it would be nice just to have people look at these are companies that have atrocious submission policies. Um, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, but uh, so, no, do not submit to them, Fred. That's what you're asking. Do not. Uh, and what I'll say is to help all of you, people get distracted by stuff like that. They get really like, so when, when you have a coach and they're like, don't get distracted by that. That's not the norm. And the student's like, okay, well, you know, and they, they move them on back. Let's approach these companies. Let's focus on positive stuff. But when people aren't with us, they, they, people get really distracted by that stuff. And they, they, cause you kind of go to a neg, most inventors go to a negative space on their own, thinking they're getting ripped off and patent attorneys take advantage of that, you know, cause patent attorneys are terrible salespeople, but selling fear is like the easiest thing to sell. Right. Um, and so people go to that negative space. And that's what I like about InventRight and our YouTube show and our coaching program and all that, because we're, we're addressing these issues, but we're addressing them in a very practical fashion and we're taking away the fear. So hopefully you guys get off tonight and you feel like I'm taking away some of this fear. Um, Uh, so Patrick said, I'm not in the loop, but can you still add an extra year to your provisional patent by adding more features and benefits? Well, yeah, you, so you can, you absolutely can. So even if you made public disclosure of a product and it's, you, you disclose this product and it has A and B in it and you file a provisional off, but the provisional when expired, you can file another provisional. Now, once that's publicly disclosed, and it's been publicly disclosed more in the year, you're, you're toast on that. But you could add C, Patrick's making that point. You could file another provisional, you could add C. But whether or not um, privately, don't put, if you didn't put it up on YouTube publicly, you didn't put it, sell it to swap me, and put it on Amazon, privately showing it for license to potential licensees, for the most part is not considered public disclosure. It's still a little bit gray, never had that bite one of our students in the butt. In that case, I filed the exact same thing, and and you can file it again. So Patrick, you don't have to file, you don't have to add something to it to file that provisional again, get another year. And it doesn't continue your prior year. It starts a new year from the, when you filed it. We get students do that all the time and they don't come up with an improvement. But if you did publicly disclose it, you can still add that improvement and be protected for that improvement that you didn't publicly disclose. So I, I know some of you are new and you don't know what public disclosure is or is We don't have time to go into that. There is a good video on that with, um, if you go to our InventRight channel and you type in Jake Ward, I interviewed Pat Trey and Jake Ward on that. So that was a fun interview. Um, I want to ask you guys a favor. Uh, so we're trying to get more reviews for um, to two things, which are both really easy to do. One, like literally you can do it in two seconds. If you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, just click on subscribe. Stephen and I would like to get from 40,000 subscribers. I haven't even looked at 40,000 something, I think, um, to 80,000 uh, within the next six months. And so that would really help us out. You know, when you subscribe to something, it's not like you get spam emails or something. You just, I think you get 
little notifications and most people don't even pay attention to their YouTube notifications. You don't even see it. So you'd be doing us a huge favor. I'd really appreciate it if you do that. Also give thumbs up when you watch videos um, and then feel free to comment on videos, all the interaction, all that stuff helps us on YouTube. The other thing you can do if you've read our book, One Simple Idea, Stephen's saying we got 700 five-star reviews and we have, I think, when you combine the older edition and the expanded edition. You know, we came out with a new edition and then it, it didn't, all the reviews didn't come to the new edition. It was really su- kind of sucky how that happened, but we could use more reviews on One Simple Idea. So if you've read our book, One Simple Idea, just type it into Amazon, do like a one or two sentence review, give us five stars. That would be much appreciated. Over our history, literally all those, I would say 90 to 95% of the reviews, we didn't ask anybody for anything. We've only kind of started asking for that, which you probably say, well, that's kind of dumb, Andrew. But we, organically, People really love what we're doing and they've wrote great reviews for it. So if you could write us a review for One Simple Idea on Amazon, it'd be great. But just if you don't have time for that or you haven't read One Simple Idea, just click on subscribe and give thumbs up to as many videos as you can. And we really appreciate that. Um, Let's see. uh, Rough Trade Designs. Thanks, Andrew. Great session. Uh, Fred, that's great advice, Andrew. Thank you. Makes sense. Not wasting your time even with a positive marketing manager, right? Um, Andrew Cartwright, these sessions are great. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Um, We Mean Fitness, already subscribed. Uh, Thank you once again for your insight. It's nice to see there's still people like you out there willing to help mentor others. Cheers, Mike. That's great. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Had a bunch of Mikes today. Um, My brother's name was Michael or Mike. And then he, I'll tell a funny story and then I'll let you guys go. And he probably doesn't want me saying this. And then, but he doesn't care. Um, And uh, he was in the dorms when he was in college. And there was a ton of mics in his dorm. And his middle name was, it's actually the German, it's E-R-I-C-H. But you actually spell it more or less Eric, Eric in German. Um, But he started saying Erich. And it was just kind of for fun. And the whole girls were like, oh, Erich. And because they liked the name and he wanted to be unique because he had a, there was a bunch of other mics in his dorm. So he changed, he, he started using Erich. And to this day, he's, I'm 51. So he's 49. Oh, he's going to hit the big five. Oh, I'm going to have to give him a hard time about that. I just got one brother. He's great. Um, so he started using Erich in the dorms. And to this day, he still uses Erich. And he made his middle name Mike. Yeah. Um, I think Mike's a great name. I like it. I still call him Mike. And then people, um, that know him, but not his brother. They're like, Mike, We're like, why is he calling you Mike? I'm like, well, that's his other name. Um, anyway, I don't know why I told you guys that story. I thought it was kind of fun, but I'll let you guys go. I want to remind you guys to take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.